Welcome to episode number 55 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it, and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin, I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. Our guest today is author Tim Lapatino, author of the book Pac-Man, Birth of an Icon, which should be available right now, give or take, uh, through publisher Cook and Becker, wherever fine books are sold. How convenient. It's like we timed it that way. Uh, <laughs> Tim is also the author of another book that we highly recommend, Art of Atari. Uh, Tim, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with both of you. Oh, you're not sick of Pac-Man yet? <laughs> Uh, not yet, but l- l- let's test that. Let's see how far we can push it. <laughs> so Tim, why Pac-Man? Are, are there still new conversations to have around Pac-Man of all things? I would think we, we kind of got the story down by now. I think there are always things to talk about in terms of Pac-Man. And I think the big question is why? Why are there still stories to tell about Pac-Man? And I think there's still uh, inf- things to dig into in mine in terms of the history, but also the question that I keep coming back to and the thing that kind of, you know, sort of keeps me in Pac-Man's path is that, why, you know, Pac-Man, it's not Dig Dug, it's not Missile Command, all these contemporaries. We're not talking about Pac-Man still, but you know we're not talking about them, but we're still talking about Pac-Man. And that is, that's really the question that sort of drove me about why did I even want to work on a book about that? It's like, why are we still talking about Pac-Man? And I think that question in and of itself is fascinating for me. And that's kind of the nugget for all the other questions that I have about Pac-Man. Yeah, I mean, Pac-Man really has stood the test of time like very few other properties have. I mean, Plenty are still remembered today, obviously, but I mean, Pac-Man still has games coming out that people buy and play, and that's kind of wild. And they've done a lot of really strange things with the Pac-Man property, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, I don't think you touched on the unreleased Wonderswan Pac-Man game in the book, but... uh, (laughs) I know, yeah, I know, that's a a oversight. (laughs) No, it's it's probably not. (laughs) There's a lot of really good info in here. Well, I have to say that uh, you know, if your your super Wonder Swan love uh, aside, I, it is part of the story. And one of the fun things, if we skip to the end here, in the back of the book, we have a gameology that we did our best to make it utterly exhaustive. Uh, mm. ter- and I think the Wonder Swan is mentioned in there. Um, so. Of course, now, as soon as I say that, you know, we're going to get a deluge of emails of people saying, you forgot this one, you know, this one <laughs> web web only game or this mobile one. But, you know, I think that that was just the, that was the last thing we did in working on this book is, you know, really do this exhaustive gameology. But I think it really underscored the whole process of like Pac-Man seems to be everywhere. Right. You know, we can talk a lot about why the original game persists and why people keep riffing on it. But I think the other thing is, is wherever video games are in any format, whatever console we're talking about, whatever, you know, small device, these teeny tiny things, the size of a credit card, Pac-Man is there. That's beautiful. It's very true. (laughs) It is. Uh, And it, and it is very true. I mean, sometimes, you know, the discussion comes up like what's the most ported game in game history. And it's, it's clearly Pac-Man. Um, I don't think there's any competition. I don't. I can't name very many consoles that has not appeared on, especially uh, if you're okay with uh, sort of aftermarket unofficial versions. It's definitely been on everything at this point. Um, yes, Pac-Man is everywhere. 
Well, let's start at the beginning. Um, Pac-Man is created by a guy named Taro Iwatani. And who is that guy? Where does he come from? You know, Iwatani's story is a really interesting one because he is definitely known for Pac-Man and knowing, known for these other games. But he started out wanting to make pinball. You know, and he was had this huge love for pinball, and he came to, you know, Namco at the time, thinking that they made pinball games, and that was, you know, one of his first jobs. And he shows up, and he's like, "I'm really excited. I have some great pinball ideas." And like, we don't make pinball games. You know, this is still the very end. You know, this is the electro, you know, you know, electrical mechanical era, and they're making games like that. And video games are still really fresh. But you know, he's he's a player. I that's how I would describe Toro Iwatani in the sense that he's always been really excited about play, about, you know, games, whether they're electronic, video game or otherwise. And he has this this sense of fun to him. And, you know, we got a chance to talk to him a little bit through, you know, multiple levels of interpreters at different points, but about this, just this ongoing love of play, you know, and I think that, you know, there's some people who are raised on video games. Obviously, video games were were not a thing when he was coming up, but developing these things where people could get together and do things together. Um, so he definitely had this vision in his mind, but there's also this, you know, creative team around him that for a variety of reasons don't get the same, uh, you know, the same focus. But, you know, and we dug into that a little bit, but, you know, at the end of the day, it does come down to his first of his vision and then putting a team around him to help execute that vision. And is Pac-Man uh, Iwatani's first game at Namco? No, no. He did a couple other games, uh, you know, called uh, Gibi. Like, there's some translation and some different things there. But there's a couple of different games. Gibi was one. Uh, then there was a sequel that followed up. And the thing that's really interesting is neither of those games were particularly successful. You know, they they didn't make a lot of money. They are not well thought of now. But they're super instrumental in terms of what was going to come next, because uh, what Iwatani learned was what sort of not to do, you know, and these games were actually rather difficult, uh, you know, kind of in terms of just walking up to it and being able to play. They were they were hard. The uh, the curve, the difficulty curve was pretty high. And uh, they were really, really important in the sense that uh, taking these lessons from this, why, why were they not successful? Why do they why were they not more interesting and then i think iwatani sort of took those lessons and turned that into a concept that would also sort of zag where everyone else was zigging you know you see a lot of i'll use this in air quotes you know violent games where you had shooters and destruction explosions and sort of aggressive you know game behaviors and he really wanted to do something different from that because that didn't really sort of jive with this sense of play that he had. I mean, I, I really, you know, in all the conversations and all the things that we've read about Iwatani and just some of the things that he told us, just, you know, very much a playful soul, you know. And so that sort of how much destruction can I cause just didn't didn't seem to harmonize with what he wanted to do. And uh, Pac-Man was an opportunity to sort of express some of that. Yeah, and I mean, Namco in this era, kind of when Pac-Man is first being conceptualized, like they're not a stranger to these quote-unquote violent games either. I mean, they're they're making Galaxian, and um, Galaxian's doing really well for them. I really liked, I didn't know the story that you put in here um, that I really enjoyed, which is that the first time Galaxian went out on test, uh, their arcade unit was 
the, the cabinet was stolen within about six hours. And, uh, you know, <laughs> calling up the president, uh, President Nakamura and being like, hey, uh, it's gone. And he's just like, well, that that means it's probably going to do pretty well, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, versus like, you know, driving through the streets trying to catch this person. I mean, I don't even know how you go about stealing an arcade cabinet. That's not like, you know, pocketing a, you know, a pack of baseball cards. I think uh, you just do it in plain sight and that's the easiest way to hide it. It's yeah. like, who's going to look at you carrying uh, an arcade cabinet or, or what might have been a cocktail, you know, table, like just out of the arcade? Who's going to go like, oh, right, they're exactly. not supposed to do that. It's like, oh, well, especially so- you show up with a dolly and everything like just yeah, look totally. very official, have a clipboard. That's what they always tell like you a, is, yeah, is walk with a clipboard. Like a yeah. jumpsuit. And, and, a and gloves, cap. right? You know, yeah. have yeah. gloves. Yep. <laughs> if he thought to bring gloves, he must be official. <laughs> I, I think Pac-Man also, I don't know, to my mind, uh, gets Iwatani out of this initial phase of trying to make what I would even describe as pinball-like video games uh, with uh, Biggie and Bombi. Um, because those are sort of breakout style, uh, you know, and, and you're literally hitting like pinball bumpers to get scores and things like that. And, and, um, I don't know if he's expressed this necessarily, but it feels to me like Pac-Man is maybe when he really sits down and goes, okay, what can I do with a video game? Uh, as opposed, you know, the, the sort of unique to video game. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that's just... Iwatani, I don't even think that's just Namco, but I think, you know, everyone's trying to, in the sort of the Wild West of creating games, everyone's bringing something to the table from somewhere else, right? You know, from electromagnet, you know, electromechanical games, from pinball, and and you're right, realizing some of those things really just don't work. Although I do think it's really funny that, uh, you know, later on, Every, you know, other people were trying to graft pinball onto Pac-Man in a variety of ways, <laughs> you know, with, uh, you know... Uh, let's just say uh, middling results at different points. I oh, like yeah. baby Pac-Man. <laughs> really? Yeah. Why? It's hard. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> I, I feel like I can't really comment on gameplay because I'm such an awful pinball player. Hmm. But I, I mean, for the for, if nothing else, like seeing a couple of those cabinets, that one, Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man, I mean, they're just gorgeous pinball cabinets. I mean, just really, really cool looking and Pac-Man is splashed across them in ways that feel very, I mean, Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man feels very cartoonish where you've got Pac-Man running all over. You've got these scenes. You've got all these things that feels very of the Pac-Man world, which may, maybe the, is the best thing about it. But it, it would be hard for me, even if, you know, even if it were an easy game, I'm a terrible pinball player. I mean, it's funny because so few of these games have any real staying power. It's just... It's just actual Pac-Man, and I guess Miss Pac-Man, but actual Pac-Man is what actually ends up kind of staying in people's minds. And I don't know. I mean, I don't even think most people have heard of Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man, let alone played it (laughs) at this point. It's just, it's not. Even Super Pac-Man, right? Which is like the improved sequel that Namco made. It's like, no one talks about Super (laughs) Pac-Man. No. (laughs) Right. And improved, I think, is in quotes. And I I think that's, you know, there's a a plus and a minus to that. I think the plus side 
there's a couple pluses. One, I think the ongoing sort of return to Pac-Man really just cements how good the original game is. You know, everyone is trying to do different things, whether you're talking about Pac-and-Pal or, you know, Super Pac-Man or Baby or, you know, any of these. Like, they really just highlight fundamentally and simply how good the original game is. But also they keep Pac-Man sort of front and center in the culture. And and I'm skipping ahead here a little bit, but I think one of the things that is really interesting about Pac-Man's move to the United States is that all of these sequels created by Midway completely uh you know approved by namco like so there's these i think if there's one sort of myth buster thing that i wanted one myth i wanted to bust in this book was this idea that midway went rogue and created all their own games including miss pac-man and no one said it was okay and that's why they lost the license and that is just absolutely and utterly untrue everything was done with the approval of namco now how they feel about it, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later, it might be another story, <laughs> but, you know, they were very happy to, uh, you know, sign the checks, you know, receive the checks and, uh, you know, sign off on those games. So. I, oh, I was just going to say, I think you do a lot of uh, really good, if not myth busting, myth exploring in this book. And I mean, one of them comes kind of right where we're at right now, which is when Pac-Man first starts taking shape, um, which, you know, you can talk a little bit about, but I think everyone's kind of heard the pizza story at this point. Right. Yes, so, yes. I mean, tell the pizza story and, and what we, what we know about it and maybe what is and isn't true about it. Right. Well, in the mythical pizza story, or maybe not mythical, uh, you know, Iwatani sat down for lunch at Shakey's Pizza, which was a chain, uh, which is an American chain in Japan, I think it was American, uh, you know, had a pizza, sat down. It was it was actually the kind with, you know, mozzarella and what's what's the I'm blanking on the kind of pizza because I'm from Chicago. We don't really eat that kind Nepal- of pizza here. Uh, uh, Napoleon pizza? Yes. Yes. Neapolitan. Neapolitan, not Napoleon. Napoleon has nothing to do with pizza. Neapolitan pizza. That's the same kind of pizza. It's just shorter. Oh, really? So he's sitting down, you know, and he's sort of working these ideas out in his head and, you know, pulls a slice out with a fork and and it pulls a slice out of the pizza. And what is that shape there? That shape with one piece removed from the Pac-Man pizza is completely Pac-Man. And there's your character. There's the titular, uh, you know, pr- protagonist for this. And, and that was the birth. He went, you know, back to the office, sketched it out. And that became, you know, the eating, the idea of eating became the central, uh, you know, game action in this game. Now, being from Chicago, I think any story where someone's eating pizza with a fork is is completely suspect <laughs> anyway. But, uh, but seriously, though, you know, it, it's really interesting. And if you go back through the... The interviews, and this was one of the things we specifically did, is to hear how Iwatani told that story and how it sort of changed slightly over time. There's points where you kind of feel like, is he walking this back a little bit? But it's also kind of unclear because often these interviews were done with a translator or they were translated. You know, and we we don't always we don't have access to some of the originals and see. Okay, is there a shade of nuance that's missing here? Is this just how this reads for you know from English? Um, but you know, so like we sort of 
my thinking on this would let's put it all out there. Let's sort of give people the, uh, you know, if you drill down through a, uh, a tree, you know, you get a cross section, right, of all these different points. And I wanted to sort of cut through and have a cross section of the development of that story and then come back to him today and say, you know, well, what is this the story? Is this true? And, and he said, yes, this is the truth. This is true. Well, and I think the way he phrased it, too, is something like, well, that's the legend now. So that's the story, which, of course, does not answer any questions whatsoever. So um, <laughs> and I mean, if he's the guy who made this design, then he's the only one who really knows and has probably forgotten at this point. It's a long time ago. I mean, there's I don't know. I, I think it's completely plausible that he just completely forgot and we're never going to know the the true quote unquote origins of Pac-Man. But I mean, even that's getting maybe a little bit ahead of it because uh, I mean, tell us about like, why is he making a game about eating in the first place when clearly the cool thing to do right now is shooting aliens? Well, I, you know, I think, you know, and I feel like this story has been a little bit, if not embellished, at least sharpened over the years. Uh, The idea that he wanted a game that wasn't, that was going to appeal to more than just the people who are already video gamers, you know, and that t- even in Japan, even in 1979, 1978, you have, you know, arcade goers or guys, you know, who are sort of attracted to a particular style of game, whether, you know, it's Space Invaders or Galaxian, and they're aggressive, they're intense, they're focused, they're sort of, you know, uh, you know, high twitch, at least for the era, you know, fast twitch games. And that is a sort of a stressful gaming experience. And what he noticed was not a lot of women were really interested in that. You know, and there's multiple reasons. You know, there's there's sort of gatekeeping. There's sort of games aren't for girls. There's, you know, some of these, you know, ideas that were around. You know, clearly there's some sexism going on here. But also just, you know, there was an idea out there that maybe these games weren't that appealing to women. And he wanted something that was less aggressive and more playful, but also, you know, allowed you to step up to a level of difficulty that wasn't oppressive and difficult and challenging. So there was some, there was definitely a desire to do something different, right? And to really sort of zag where the other games were zigging, but also, you know, have a broader appeal. And I think it goes back to this, this sense of fun and play where gaming didn't have to be this, like at the end of it, I'm sweating. Right. You know, that like he wanted to do that. And I think I think as time goes on, you know, he's focused more and more on that. Some of the early interviews, uh, we didn't we didn't quote all of these things, but, you know, taking it with a sort of a grain of 1980s salt, you know, uh, you know, Iwatani said at one point that, you know, he thought about oh, what, what appeals to women? Well, they like eating, you know, which uh, I'll just put that there and we can discuss that later if you want. He I told mean, me that. Uh, at one point, and he also said that in his uh, post-mortem at GDC. <laughs> so I will attest that yes. uh, this man has told me that specifically. Uh, so, right, so. right. And, I mean, and, everyone you know, likes eating. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not wrong, per se. <laughs> right, right. But do women specifically like eating? Obviously, you know, I think the, the problems with that are pretty self-evident. Yeah. But, but I think the idea of looking for this universal... You know, this universal thing that everyone can relate to. Not everyone can relate to, you know, trying to attack these next wave of aliens, but really this this commonplace activity and making it fun. You know, and initially the game was really just about eating, you know, but it was when sort of as they developed it, the idea of the ghosts chasing and this sort of interplay between 
chasing and being chased that I think that's sort of the secret sauce in some ways to Pac-Man is that it's not just, you know, you can pick all kinds of other games, even some of the contemporaries. You think of like Rally X with the, you know, the racing game where it's a multi-screen racing game and you just have these other cars chasing you. You're trying to get all the, you know, all the flags like that. That's a that's a one way situation, right? You're just being chased, right? And there's a point where that's not as fun, right? It, there, there's no uh, turnabout. But Pac-Man is very much about that turnabout of depending on the situation. Have you eaten the Have you eaten the the power pellet or not? Are you the chaser? Or are you the uh, you know the chase the chasey? Is that a word? Uh, you know which which state are you in? And I think that gives people some some respite it kind of allows them to breathe but it also allows the game to have a you know sort of an up and down kind of you know uh just a just a different path of gameplay and which i think appeals to different people and you also brought up uh the parallel to popeye in this book where you know this sort of idea of being the the weak one who can't win and then suddenly you eat something and you're the tables have turned and you're the powerful one. And I don't know, it just got me thinking of like how freaking different would video game history be if we didn't have Popeye. Popeye <laughs> has done so much for video games that we do not give credit for. Yeah. You should get like an honorary <laughs> induction into the, you know, video game hall of fame or something, you know, as a best supporting actor. You know, <laughs> yeah. So, that's so, that's so funny. I just want to dwell on yeah, the Popeye please. thing for a minute. I mean, I, I had heard that rumor, you know, I had heard that that said, and then talking to him about it, I was just kind of blown away with like the distillation of the mechanics and just how popular Popeye was in Japan, like very popular, you know, and also that's just when you think of Popeye, that's not what you think. Of. You don't think of popular. You just think, okay, this is this sort of moment in pop culture time. But the idea that Popeye has this lineage with Pac-Man and the spinach was just really fun. Well, I mean, Popeye was the name of like one of the most popular fashion magazines in Japan. <laughs> like, like that's that's that he's a that's a thing. Like Popeye is a thing in Japan. Um, so, I th- I think what makes Pac-Man remarkable, uh, you know, all these things we're talking about, this sort of sense of drama of the the ebbs and flows of of uh, empowerment and disempowerment. Um, this is all in a game where all you do is move in four directions, you know, and, and, and that's all you do. And, and, and I think, and you touch on this quite a bit. It's, it's the simplicity of the game that, that, uh, that they really focused on. And I think nailed. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the, I think that's the sort of one of the magical parts of Pac-Man is that yes, it's simple so that it's, you know, it's super easy to walk up to that game and grasp it really quickly. You know, okay, I can totally grok this and understand what's happening here. But then also realizing that that simplicity doesn't change, but the difficulty just ramps up, you know, hockey stick style, um, which I think is, you know, really fun. And, you know, it's that, that cliche. I don't know if Nolan Bushnell was the first one to say this, but, you know, games, they wanted to make games at Atari that were difficult, you know, easy to learn, but difficult to master. And Pac-Man is absolutely in that mold. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I mean, just the creation of this game, it seems like every design they made, every design choice they made as you're looking back at this is like, oh yeah, wow, that was a good idea. That was a good idea. So I love it all <laughs> laid out like this. Um, even down to silly things where it's like, we thought about 
um, making him a little more detailed. Like we could have given him eyes. Um, but I, I love what I think it was Iwatani who said, well, if we gave him eyes, then we'd probably have to give him like glasses and a mustache too. And it just never ends. I'm like, oh, I, I didn't know that was the path you have to follow if you give something eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's, it's things like that. And um, even down to the color of the ghosts, um, which I thought you told a really a couple of really good stories about the the ghost colors in here and about how you know uh was it nakamura who wanted to make them red at first all of them red right well i thought that was really interesting because you you get to understand a little bit of the thinking there it's like okay there we want to we want people to know you know this is early enough that are the ghost aggressors are they your friends well if you make them all red then it's very clear that they're the bad guys Right, but the but the idea is no. This had to be appealing. It had to be differentiated, especially in terms of how each of the ghosts operated in relation to Pac-Man. So I like that, but I also like that interplay of how you know in this story that Iwatani told that he couldn't just say, "Well, nope, it's my game." So these ghosts are going to be blue and pink, and you know, and all these different colors. You know, he's not going to stand up to his boss and just put his foot down. He's going to, you know, okay, fine. This is what you said. And then he went away and he pulled everybody else in the office and said, you know, 30 some other people agree with me, you know, and you're the only one who disagrees. And, you know, and uh, Nakamura, for his credit, you know, really, you know, okay, this is, you know, this is the consensus. I just love the idea that, you know, Nakamura, that, you know, people, you know, in Japan and, you know, he when he passed away a few years ago, people were calling him the father or you know, almost the godfather of Pac-Man, even though, you know, he obviously didn't help develop the game. But just what a strong stamp that he would put on games. And they talk, we talk about this in the book. He would play the games for hours and hours and hours, not just well enough to, you know, get a gut reaction saying, oh, I think this is good. I think it'll sell. Like, he, you know, the... We talked, I think, I think this was in the book. We talked about he played it over an entire week, like holiday weekend. Like he put in like double digit hours on Pac-Man. And it's like, you know, was he giving playtesting feedback? I don't think so. But to me, at least in my mind, I always imagine this almost like, uh, you know, he was, you know, method acting. He's like, I just have to get into this game and see if I understand it. You know, see if I really grasp it, which, which I think is just kind of beautiful. Yeah, and I mean, he had a pretty good philosophy over at Namco in that days of just finding people who weren't necessarily like the the smartest or tested the highest or whatever, but the people who just had interesting ideas and a unique way of thinking. Um, I mean, that's at least that's how you quote it in the book, which I think is, I think is really nice. But um, those ghost colors, my favorite thing about it uh, was that he looked at Sanrio colors to decide the color of the ghosts because Hello Kitty was getting really big at the time. Um, I don't know if we touched on this in our episode with uh, Matt Alt, who uh, wrote the book Pure Invention, but he has a really good chapter about just how freaking big yeah. Sanrio was at the time and what a big uh, what a big deal that sort of like kawaii look um, was for Japan at that time. And so uh, this just that's so smart to me. It's like, oh, well, that's the really popular thing. So let's use their color scheme. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, completely. Well, and Hello Kitty's huge and amazing and like such a when we talk about, you know, we're sort of touching on the idea of this minimalist design, you know, of Pac-Man. Hello Kitty in some ways is that same way, you know, just how do you boil this down to something that is so simple and super cute? And and Matt Matt Alt is awesome. He was actually he uh, gave some feedback on some of the early drafts and, you know, kind of pushed me to do some, you know, hey, you know, dig into this more. Did you think about this? So it was super helpful to have him uh, just kind of in my ear 
a little bit on this. So we had a lot of fun talking about it and, uh, and, and his book's amazing. So everybody should go out and buy that and read it. It's phenomenal. So Small world. yeah, <laughs> we all know each other. It's, it's, <laughs> this is corrupt somehow. I don't know. It's conspiracy <laughs> theories going on. Um, so, you know, I think, I think people are really interested in these sort of cut ideas and, you know, one of them being like maybe all the ghosts are red and you actually, in the book, uh, have a photograph um, of when the uh, the ghosts were read, at least temporarily, in this game, uh, which I I find fascinating. But um, I'm actually more curious about um, what looks like an entirely cut mechanic of, of, of sort of squishing the ghosts. Can you can you get into that? Yeah, that didn't go super far, but the idea that there would be some, you know, there would be some way to, uh, you know, push back against the ghosts and, uh, you know, trap them. Like, is there a middle state between, you know, eating them or killing them? You know, there's all all kinds of things cycled through. And, you know, with some of these documents, it was it was hard for us to tell which things were just sort of thrown out there and then which ones actually made it to, you know, actual builds, Uh, you know. One of the things we did, we knew that, you know, made it to the build was the idea of the, you can, if you see the sort of ghost pen in the middle of the rectangular ghost pen, there's sort of a top, right? You know, and that's all the ghosts exit through the door. But the idea that there would be at the door would be triggered at different points. Like you had to eat a certain amount of dots before the the door would open and then the door could close or you could trigger the door. Like there was a whole complicated mechanic happening there about making it much more complicated, which actually shows up in some of the sequels. I think they just couldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, they couldn't help themselves. They got to bring it back. But I, you know, I think like with the, with that, I just, it's just funny how they just kept stripping things away, you know, just kept stripping things away. And it's, I look at this, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a game developer, um, but you know, I'm a designer. And one of the things that it's so easy to add, right. It's so easy to add. I mean, you know, to, oh, well, it could, we could do this. Well, then we could do this. And it leads you down these rabbit holes where it takes a serious discipline of saying no to features and new parts and, you know, a little bit of decorate decoration here or there, you know, additional color, like, and, and then you've got a much more complex thing, you know, and it's so easy to add. And it's like a snowball rolling down the hill, right? You know, and just things just sort of start sticking to it. And I, I, I was just really amazed at the, the restraint. And and even some of the things that did make it into the game had some pushback for, I mean, basically being like, no, this is this is feature creep, uh, like the cutscenes, which are of course iconic now, but you know that was that was pushed back on at first. Like we don't need that. What does that do? I don't want to program that. Right, and I, I love <laughs> I love the programmers like you know f- pushback, and he's like, I don't want to do that. Like it wasn't like it wasn't like I don't have enough room or, you know, we're going to run out of memory or I don't know how he was just like, I don't want to do that, which which actually like one, that's sort of shocking. But two, I kind of love it because it sort of gets at the sort of organic process. There wasn't you know, they didn't have hard deadlines at that point at at Namco. It wasn't like, okay you have to deliver this game by here so you can say, oh, that's scope creep and we're not going to hit our deadline. They actually didn't have a deadline, which, you know, they said the game's done when it's done, which kind of blows my mind uh you know and because i think a lot of games that could be the kiss of death right you know that like you're just going to keep noodling this thing until you've sort of you've you've worked it to death i don't know you know you guys like i hear this from people who are you know into like uh sculpture i'm not a sculptor but there is a point where you can overwork 
a sculpture, right? You can just sort of work it and work it and work it until you've kind of ruined the thing. And I, and I'm, I'm very impressed that they had, you know, over a year to work on this and yet that didn't happen. And, you know, they still, at the end, they were pulling things out and they were, you know, they were scrapping these ideas and minimizing to get down to this level of simplicity. So they get this game together and they're originally trying to call it puck man. Right. And, uh, this is interesting for a lot of reasons. I think everyone's heard the the line from like the Scott Pilgrim movie or whatever, but um, <laughs> it you, you allude to this a little bit, but the thing I find more interesting about Puckman is that Tomy actually, the toy company Tomy already had a toy called Puckman at this time. And it also kind of looks like Pac-Man and it makes me wonder like, is this really some divine coincidence that they both happened to come up with this or is there something i don't know like did he see this at some point is there inspiration there so that so there was a lawsuit right there was a lawsuit that was you know that was settled mostly because there were other people who were challenging the name so there was a lawsuit there was kind of a some you know back and forth and eventually like sort of a under the table licensing agreement with Puckman, but it's not because, at least from from what we could figure out, it wasn't that you know someone from Namco saw this toy and it was like that would make the perfect name. It looks just like ours. It's very much. It was more about you know a uh, you know a version of that actually that word that Paku Paku uh, of eating that it, it was more of a natural thing. So you know that you know they paid some money. That sort of it became an agreement rather than an aggressive, you know, sort of a fight about this name, but it is, you know, but then, yeah, so that, that is, I think that's intriguing. And I think, but I think people also read into some sort of nefarious, you know, something there, which I, you know, you think about it, they didn't even really think of themselves as in the same category. Right. I mean, cause I mean, now it makes sense. You're like, they made, Tommy made the first puck man toy, but Pac-Man wasn't a toy until much later, right? You know, that video games, electronic games, and toys were actually very distinct. So this did this wasn't a, you know, sort of elbows in. You know, I see it much more as, you know, this was this was unrelated. Oh, this popped up, we've got to deal with this. You know, Tommy's fine. That's you know, not a lot of money changes hands. Yeah. I just wonder it is what it is about the act of eating that makes you yellow and round. <laughs> jaundice i think <laughs> Not it's, just, fruit. it's just a yeah. strange strange coincidence is all i mean i don't know yeah, yeah um, totally is. and i also liked their their backup name uh paku iman which if you say that fast it sounds a lot like pokemon and oh. <laughs> might have might have ruined some history down the line if uh or not ruined it would have changed some things down the Dis- line I disaster think. averted yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it well, in the, the Puckman story, you know, of changing the name from Puckman to Pac-Man because, you know, nefarious American teenagers, which, you know, n- no one questioned the fact that it was going to be American teenage boys scratching off, you know, the P to make an F. But I, I thought it was really interesting is that everybody wanted to take credit for that idea. Like multiple <laughs> people were like, no, that was my idea. No, I came. No, I was the first one to raise my hand and say that. And. I don't know. That's, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, oh, the, you know, the pizza, that was my idea. This isn't like some, you know, I had the idea that I didn't, we didn't want to use the F word. Everyone could see that coming a mile away, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) 
Well, it's like I, I've I've spoken to at least three people who claim to have coined the term blast processing while at Sega, and it's like, really? <laughs> you want what? that on your resume, right? You know, the originator of blast processing, which doesn't no, actually a thing. No one likes that. That's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, but you um, remember it. You oh, do remember are, it. Yes. Those are two separate things, though. No one likes it, and it's not a thing, right? It's not a thing. <laughs> But people did like it. I mean, I I want blast processing. I don't know what it is, but it sounds cool to me. Yeah, just just like teraflops. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just a good word. True. Very <laughs> okay, true. so games done comes out. Um, are we in Japan first exclusively? Do they try to go worldwide immediately? What's up? Yes. No. So it's first. It's it's in Japan exclusively, and it's a moderate hit. Like it is not a, and I think this, I think this idea really colors really the rest of the story in a way that I don't think is very obvious. At least it wasn't obvious to me really before we started writing this book is that Pac-Man is, you know, it's one of another bunch of games, you know, there's all kinds of games and you never want to go back and say, Oh, you know, who we just knew Pac-Man was a hit. The reality in Japan is like, "Eh, it was, it did fine. It, you know, but I mean, compared to how it would, would do, there was a you know so people are like oh you know they they let midway you know they were jumping ahead here but they licensed it to midway and let them kind of do whatever they want that's because you know if you're like hey you can borrow my skateboard or you can borrow my lamborghini you know pac-man was not a lamborghini you know pac-man was a, a moderate hit and you know you'd put it right there next to rally x and you know it wasn't even a galaxian or a galaga it was not of that level in in japan so it did fine you know i i think the the big takeaway is they were like, wow, this is really interesting in how we have women coming into the arcade in a way that we did not have before. But, it, you know, Pac-Man fever was still months and months off. Is there any source at all? So, OK, when, when we're talking about console games, um, especially once there's sort of an established uh, uh, media presence for like consumer facing, you know, video game magazines, uh it's pretty easy to sort of triangulate what critics slash players thought of games uh you know in their time but for something like pac-man are are there any resources that 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 give you a sense of of what people's opinions were when it was new uh you know it's interesting because as soon as it are we talking about Japan or, you know, in the either US? way I meant Japan specifically, I guess here, but, uh, but uh, in terms of America too, which, which, you know, maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but you know, what, yeah. what did people think of it when they saw it blindly? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's really just anecdotal evidence and a lot of it came from, you know, people from Namco talking about, you know, on the first test, because because apparently in Japan, when you introduce a game, there's a whole document, or at least this was the case then, there was a whole documentation process. You had to say, you know, when it went out on on test, you know, where it went, who saw it. Like, there, there were very strict requirements. And, you know, I think this is like the, uh, you know, maybe it's the equivalent of our, you know, sort of like the Better Business Bureau in terms of things they had to do to document this. And so they were all, you know, so there was a lot of eyes on this versus in the U.S., uh, we don't even remember where it first went out test or where it actually got, you know, like those kind of details don't seem, you know, oftentimes they're lost, but with Puckman, um, very much like, you know, they were, they could not believe, you know, they could hear laughing and they could hear people having fun with it. And it was, they were installed near a movie theater and 
how much fun people were having and how many women were drawn to this game. So there's a, there's more anecdotal evidence rather than, you know, game journalism. And again, we're always running into the challenge of, you know, finding archival material of that time, you know, with, we, we work with some Japanese speakers who dug into some of this stuff, but, you know, we run into the same issues that we have here as finding good, you know, primary sources from the era. So a lot, a lot of it is really just getting, you know, anecdote. I mean, how many times did we hear from uh, Namco, uh, either programmers or, you know, salespeople? Yeah, we were surprised as anybody, you know, like, yeah. you know, and, and that I think is, uh, that's the telltale sign, right? You know, there's no, uh, we knew it'd be a hit. Now that changes once you get to the United States, because there were a couple people who uh, singled it out and really championed the game. And we, we can talk about that if you want to go on there. Well, sure. I, I mean, how, okay. So it comes out in Japan. It's moderate success. Um, Namco does not have anything like a U.S. branch at this point in history, I imagine. Um, so this is a game that could be uh, licensed uh, to companies in the U.S. Um, so how, how does it how does it get here ultimately? Right. So very quickly, you know, they they sort of pack it, package it with you know a couple other games. You have uh, you've got Rally X and, and then a couple other games that I always forget. You know the names because they're not well known. Uh, Tank Battalion. Is uh, one of the other ones, and you know, there's a, uh, and then the other one, uh, Rally X, Tank Battalion, Pac Man. There was a fourth one. It's it, it'll come to me in a minute, but uh, you know, they package them up and they they are looking to you know, I mean, licensing money, right? You know, other Japanese companies have done a good job of licensing. They worked well with uh, Namco to license, you know, uh, you know, Namco and Midway with Galaxian. So. You know, okay, this is a great revenue stream. We don't have to do anything. You know, it's in that era. It when you license a game for, to like the United States or you know Canada or whatever, it's not like they're shipping cabinets. It's actually a much easier process. They're just saying, okay, go ahead. Here's the PCB. Build it yourself, right? So like you know, th- that's really attractive and appealing to Namco because they don't have to build anything. They don't have to ship anything. They don't have to worry about manufacturing. They don't have to worry about uh, knockoffs of popular games, which is, you know, increasingly a big issue in terms of bootlegs, right? Um, so, like, all those things are, you know, simple. So they so they come to the U.S. and they're looking for, you know, they're looking for a licensee, right? And on the short list, you know, they, they talk to Atari. Uh, they talk to, you know, Bally Bal- Midway. So Bally is, you know, the parent company of Midway. They purchased Midway in the in the late 60s but Bally's you know really much you know more focused on old school coin and then later on they really get into casino you know all that that whole world but they you know they make plenty of pinball machines but the bigger thing is and this is the delightfully unsexy is that they have this super powerful and awesome distribution arm right so they you know Chicago at this point in the you know especially in the 70s and 80s is sort of this nexus uh, this hub of coin operated, you know, whether you're talking about jukeboxes or pinball or arcade games, because you have all these makers within a small, you know, relatively small area, you've got a ton of manufacturing capacity and then distribution. So some of the biggest distributors, like M- I think Empire Distribution was owned by Bally, is so that that becomes super attractive because they know that whatever games they sell, there's not going to be an issue of, oh, you know what, we could only make 2000 and that was, you know, and call a spade a spade. So that was one of the sort of the sweeteners of working with, uh, 
you know, working with uh, Midway. And some of this was probably colored by Namco's previous experience with Atari, right? I mean, Atari's Japan branch was uh, pretty quickly snapped up by Namco, and then they ran into all kinds of problems with like, you're not sending us stuff and um, Nolan Bushnell's hungover and not listening to me and that sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> and, um, which is, I mean, that's an anecdote from the book. It's not a, not a always thing, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't mean to paint him in a particularly bad light, but you know, they, they probably at this point, I mean, just, I imagine would be feeling like, I just don't like, we want to, we want the money. We know that there is money to be made in this, but like the headache with working, you know, trying to ship things and distribute things over there and learn the entire American arcade industry. I mean, that just probably sounds so unappealing. You're looking for any other solution. Right, right. And they had some, you know, and Namco had had issues with sort of fighting pirates, even in Japan, and like, you know, having to sue them. And uh, from what I understand in Japan, that was even more difficult because of the way intellectual property was handled. So, you know, having a sort of a feudal fight, you know, trying to recoup the dollars that you're clearly losing because someone else is making your game. I mean, all, I think all those things sort of burned, uh, you know, Namco and specifically Nakamura. Like, they're like, you know, if this happens and, you know, if we license this game and it's popular, you're going to deal with that. And, you know, that was sort of, I think that was a driving force in how sort of total and exclusive the rights, you know, transfer was. I don't think, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I don't think it would happen quite that way today. You know, very much like, you know, all the power, all the responsibility for that stuff would stay with, you know, the original company. But here and, you know, they're like, hey, it's your problem. Now, the upside is that it was also, you know, when things went well, uh, it was also all their benefit, you know, and that's kind of where uh, Stan Jiraki comes in. You know, from my mind, you know, if there are two parts to this story, you know, it's birth in Japan and then growth in uh, the United States and Chicago. Um, Stan Jiraki is sort of like a key figure in, you know, once this game, you know, comes over and the Midway folks come take a look at it because from, you know, what he said, you know, he said he just felt like there was something really different about it and he really liked it. So Stan Jiraki was, you know, basically in charge of, you know, marketing and really understood how, you know, I mean, he had grown up in coin op, right? So he had started at Seaburg, the, uh, uh, the jukebox manufacturer, and then he moved on and did some games. So by the time he was at Midway, you know, he had been, he'd been in coins since he was a te- late teenager. So he understood, you know, all the mechanical sides, like, you know, what it's like to build things, what it's like to get them distributed. Who are the people to talk to when you're looking at sales and, you know, all the nuts and bolts that, you know, we forget because especially in Chicago, video games just sort of rode on the back of the rest of that industry. Right. So you're not just, you're not plowing brand new ground. You're going to the same distributors and you're going to the same places. You know, you're talking about the same sort of royalty split with the, you know, with the coin split. And, but Jiraki saw this game and he really liked it, you know? And I, and I think it's really interesting because I mean, this is, you know, we dug into this with some original interviews. You, you would think that you'd talk to us, you know, people at Bally, you know, people in, uh, you know, who were in leadership at, uh, you know, Midway and all of them said, Oh no, 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 my idea. I, t- I just knew it from the beginning. You know, I knew this was going to be the thing that puts us over the top. And they're all like, wow, we thought it was terrible. You know, this was a stupid game. You know, it's so I, simple. I, it doesn't even have any buttons. It's just a joystick. Right. And the other, th- 
And the other thing is that, you know, and I think they rightly perceived this idea that this didn't feel like an American game. It felt there was something about it. It was overly cute. It was kind of odd because it's, you know, it doesn't have this sort of like, you know, clear, you know, it just doesn't have this straight ahead gameplay, right? It's, it is this sort of waxing and waning. And I don't know if they would have articulated it that in 1980, but it, it felt very not American. You know, so some people said, I, I don't even know what to do with this, you know, and they look at the, you know, they had seen some of the art, uh, you know, early on, although, you know, Stan Jaraki actually carried the PCB with him in his carry on luggage on the plane back to Chicago, which I, I thought was awesome. I was like, I'm glad you didn't check your luggage in O'Hare. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've been there, um, you know, because that thing would have never survived, but um, but but he was really for it. You know, he was very much champion this game, even when everybody else is like, why are you wasting your time with this game? And uh, clearly that, you know, there was an instinct there that was proven right. I mean, this is this book is certainly the first time I've heard this guy's name. And yeah. I don't know if I'm, you know, maybe just not brushed up on my Midway history or what, but this is not a name that I've ever really associated as as part of the the Pac-Man story. Yeah, no, and I, I don't, th- I don't think that's just you, Frank. I think, you know, when we go back, when you go back to like, you know, the the uh, contemporaneous, you know, like media coverage of like Miss Pac-Man. Now you see Stan Jaraki sort of getting out in front of it a little bit, and you know, sort of, sort of putting that, putting the story out about the origin of Miss Pac-Man a little bit. But before that, you know, he just, you know, he's saying all the things that you know, a VP is going to say to the trade magazines, which is, we're very excited about the success. We know it's going to be a, a hit. You know, I mean, they would say that about any game, right? You know, uh, right. you know, what is the the other game they had that had balloons and, you know, you had to pop the balloon. It was a terrible game. Uh, but, you know, they said the same thing about, oh, this it'll be our next great hit, great hit, you know, so reading, you know, some of those magazines. But so, like, there's a little bit there, but, you know, hearing some of those stories, I really wanted to pull on that thread. You know, and, uh, you know, started to talk to Stan and Stan's still around. He's still with us. Uh, you know, he's, I think he's almost 90, I believe now, but I, I was really impressed with how sharp he was and, uh, how very much he was going to call, you know, call me out when I said something that was not right. Or, you know, uh, that's not true. That guy said that that's baloney. I mean, really sharp, really remembered the details here. And so it was really fun actually putting together that picture of you know because we have this this thread of you know 1980 and hearing what he says to the press and then you know seeing him kind of move on from pac-man and then coming back to it uh so you know this was this is one of the other sort of uh you know found objects sort of the found history that i was really excited to unpack because it was such a big deal and it's not just about the game you know which i want to get to um it's really about what did they do once pac-man became a hit which i think you know could have gone a lot of different ways Right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about how Pac-Man starts doing in America. I mean, how who's playing it and uh, how does it start taking off? So they had a couple test locations, uh, you know, Namco or I'm uh, sorry, Midway had a few locations here in Chicago. So the for people who are not like Chicago geography buffs, um, you know, there's there's Chicago proper and then both Midway and then some of the other, you know, early coin uh makers are right in the suburbs you know like butting up right against uh chicago so you have a lot of stuff on test you have pinball in the suburbs there was a point until the 70s where actually they couldn't sell pinball in chicago at all 
And that's a whole other story about gambling. I mean, Chicago and gambling, you guys have a sense of uh, the connection there, the mob, you know, so there were very tight restrictions on even selling and operating in the city limits. So I think that's some of the reason why some of these, uh, you know, these early coin companies that who did pinball were positioned right outside the city, you know, and also, you know, warehouse space is a little cheaper and those kinds of things. But but the game starts doing well. You know, uh, you know, it gets released, you know, in the fall, uh, and and by December, you're we're seeing, you know, in uh, you know some of the coin coin magazines that, you know, it's already exceeding expectations by January, right? So you've got November, December, and Jan, and, and those times are kind of slow. You guys have been to Chicago in the, in the winter time. You know, it's you're not necessarily super excited to go out and you know go out to the bars or travel around to an arcade because there's two feet of snow on the ground. Um, but uh, it, it does well really, really quickly, you know, and suddenly it, you know, it starts getting talked about in uh, like Jukebox, you know, or some of the other uh, trade magazines, you know, by January and February, like it's starting to break records. And, uh, and it's interesting because they, you know, the early press just talks about this weird phenomena, you know, and it, there's very quickly you start getting to, to the summer of, you know, the following year that now the press is starting to pick up on a, on a sort of a double barreled story, right? It's one is there's this, your kids are probably talking about this thing called Pac-Man. What is this thing? And it's, it's a hilarious to see people describe it. Cause you know, what would we say? Oh, it's a sphere with a, you know, a slice cut out. People are calling him with this yellow bubble or this, uh, you know, this weird, you know, phantasmagoric float, you know, floaty circle. I mean, the way people describe it is not clearly not coming right out of the press release. Right. You know, but they're trying, they're trying to get a handle on what this thing is. But the other barrel of that story is coin operated arcade machines, right? This idea of this, this arcade fever as uh, you know, some of the, uh, you know, newspaper articles were calling it like this idea that kids were, you know, going to these somewhat shady places and spending all their lunch money. Some of them are cutting school, but, or, you know, and it wasn't even always negative. It was just like, what is this thing? Let's explain it. You know, and Pac-Man was this, you know, from pretty early on, you know, Pac-Man was sort of this exemplar. And I think that was part of the, you know, the popularity because once this sort of hits the mainstream and you have, you know, we were watching footage of like a, a Channel 7 Chicago newscaster standing in an arcade, super loud. It's smoky. I mean, you can almost see the, you know, the smoke hanging in the air. So, you know, standing for, for all intents and purposes, kind of like an alien on an alien planet. You're like, <laughs> I'm standing here in a, you know, arcade. What are these kids doing to these bleeping, bopping, you know, boxes? Why they're playing something called video games, you know, and and that was very much the tone of it. And Pac-Man became sort of you know this this you know uh, exhibit a of one game that they really like is this you walk you move around a board and eat i mean it's just like this sort of so pac-man became the example you know and it became the shorthand in some ways especially in like the mainstream press for video games well i think if you're if you're coming at it from this sort of like whoa this foreign crazy thing we're we're looking at here and um you know, just that kind of tone, which you still see sometimes today. It's like, that's almost the one that makes the most sense to be like, they're playing something called video games. And rather than, rather than it being something like Rally X, which is just like, and you're a car, like that makes too much sense. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta do something like, and you're a strange yellow blob that looks like a, a pizza and there's colorful ghosts. And I mean, like, 
that sounds ridiculous and sort of fits the tone of like what the heck are video games, right? A thousand percent. Absolutely. I think he nailed it. Well, I also think that, I mean, maybe he's not the first, but this is one of the first sort of characters that's that's very much a character, right? Yes, and and yes. it's, you know, I, I think this is something that even today, some game developers have a hard time understanding where it's like, you know, you need to have like a character that people grasp onto uh, in order for this to persist. And, and you know, it's not the car from Rally X. It's not the ship from Galaxian, right? It's it's this it's this odd little eating dot guy, you know, who, right. who has a name and a face on on the cabinet and all that stuff. Um, since we're kind of running low on time a little bit, I, I, I want to sort of jump to the future a little bit. So you know, the obviously huge success, right? Like kind of becomes the poster child of video games as video games are becoming like really a thing. Um, And it kind of feels in some ways like there's a split, I don't know if timeline's the right word, but you know, it's almost like Pac-Man in Japan and Pac-Man in America kind of go their own ways in a little, in in a a way. Is, Is that kind of your perception of it as well? Well, yes, and I would actually make it even more extreme. It's where Pac-Man is just done in Japan. Like there are there are very few sequels. You know, there's none of the Midway uh, Pac-Man sequels. You know, we're talking about Miss Pac-Man, Baby Pac-Man, Junior Pac-Man. Uh, you know, uh, Mr. and Mrs. All of those games. Almost none of those are none of the Midway created Pac-Man games were 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 sent to Japan. And I and you know, and there's a lot of stories about that. Like, oh, well, maybe they didn't like them. Maybe they thought they were, oh, they turned their nose up at these American games that weren't as good. But I think the reality is, is that just Japanese audiences has just moved on. You know, they hadn't moved on to something else and it wasn't Pac-Man. And I think part of the, I think the appeal and the allure of Pac-Man in the U.S. was part of being part of this video craze and getting, you know, being the poster child for the video game explosion. And then, you know, this sort of bright idea that Stan Jiraki and the Midway folks have is, wait, we have this character. We have this game that's really popular. What else could we do? You know, we make games, but you know what? Let's license it. And it's and it goes from a T-shirt, a single T-shirt license. Someone wants to make Pac-Man Fever, you know, organic, you know, licensing Pac-Man Fever T-shirts. And suddenly it's, a, you know, the trickle turns into a deluge of, you know, of all kinds of licensed stuff. Everything from, you know, sleeping bags to plush toys to, you know, uh, action figures to, you know, almost anything you could put on put pac-man on it happened and which i think is a big deal it's saying a lot because it's not like you know midway was just waiting for this to happen they're waiting for the gold rush this is a video game company they you know the only thing they know about licensing is the is the opposite is they would license properties for their pinball games right you know they would have evil knievel or uh you know pinball wizard and the who you know they so they understood that part of it so they understood the value of it but it's not like they had a whole team ready to be like all right pac-man underwear who wants some (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's some really strange and fun Pac-Man merch out there. Um, we had Brian Smolik on a while back who has some really, really fun stuff in his Pac-Man collection. I don't even think we talked about it at all, but uh, we saw some of his stuff last time we were in town. There's like, what, a, a bike and a drum and like just all kinds, <laughs> you know, like the, the shirts and the cups and stuff make sense to me. But Pac-Man was on everything. 
Yeah, it was. And and Brian has an amazing collection. He actually uh, sh- sh- lent some of his stuff to us to photograph, which was great. I, you know, and I th- and I think that the best Pac-Man thing that I heard of is talking to Greg Frears, who was there at Bally Midway. He was more on the pinball side. He was an artist, but he took home a prototype that was unproduced of a Pac-Man toilet seat. <laughs> and uh, I mean, use your imagination on that one, right? You know, it opens yeah. up. What yeah. does Pac-Man do? You know, but he said wow. that uh, it never made it out of uh, production. You know, never made it into actual production, but he did actually toilet train a couple of his kids on that toilet seat. So, oh, so it's used. Okay. So. It's used. And he doesn't have it. And I was like, what? You didn't save that? I, I, not I, save I, the I, prototype Pac Man toilet seat. Prototype Pac Man toilet seat. Why'd you use it, you fool? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know. There, there's so much more in this book, everyone. I mean, we can't possibly go through an entire book in an hour. Uh, so uh, please go check it out. Um, is there is there anything more you wanted to discuss maybe about the, the midway splintering? And, 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 you know, I don't I don't think we have enough time to really get into the full history of Miss Pac-Man or anything like that. But I mean, is are there any sort of misconceptions maybe to, to discuss about the relationship between Midway and Namco and, and, and that game? Yeah, you know, I think it was very much, you know, Midway looked at it as open arms. They said, you know, hey, we recognize there's a Pac-Man gravy train and we're going to ride it, right? You know, and so they they were pursuing multiple avenues, right? They were looking at their own sort of legitimate, you know, speed up kit to counter the fact that, you know, other people were sort of, you know, hacking Pac-Man and then selling that. But that also got on, you know, they got on the radar of, you know, a couple of uh, students from, uh, you know, from the East coast who had developed what would become Miss Pac-Man. And, you know, they came to them with this game that, you know, for all intents and purposes, they could never sell it legally. There's a whole story and you get totally read about it in the book, but they came to Midway and Midway could have just been like, get out of here kids, you know, but instead they saw promise in that. And then they actually took what was the germ of an idea. It was not a fully formed thing and sort of really, you know, we use this term a lot now co-created. I mean, they really did co-create Miss Pac-Man, with uh, GCC, General Computer Corporation, um, you know they they did work together with them, and the end result is Miss Pac-Man, and thus the most you know after they set a record for Pac-Man in terms of the most games sold, they went on and topped that the following year with Miss Pac-Man. And because, for, as Frank mentioned, people really like cut content. Um, go look at this book and see the early images of Pac-Woman from this because they're. Um, I don't think it would have done as well if that had been the the design of Miss Pac-Man. We'll just put it that way. It's, it's Again, a little it's about simplicity, right? Like the, I mean, yep. there's designs in here where she has like hair, where yeah. they've added a <laughs> a a downward facing sprite, so she's actually looking at you with two eyes, and it's you Creepy. know you you much like Iwatani and his crew. I think they came to realize like no simplicity, simple, simple. Just put a right. bow on Pac-Man. We're done. <laughs> right. Totally. Well, and I think, and I think uh, the interesting thing is, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, did Midway just do that all on their own? That sort of axing the hair, you know, was very much like Nakamura's like no red hair. This is not happening. So this was very, this was very much like, a, a, you know, a co-creation and uh, seeing some people coming really with a different thought on Pac-Man and adding to this, this simple thing. I mean, we talked about the beauty and the awesomeness of Pac-Man and simplicity, but also at the same time, I think the cool thing about Pac-Man and why it persists is because you can add, you can take away from, you can, 
you can add things to Pac-Man and still fundamentally under the hood, Pac-Man's still there. You know, and I think that's why people keep doing it. That's why you see, you know, uh, you know, Pac-Man Championship Edition. It's why you see the, you know, uh, you know, Pac-Man 99, you know, these new versions of Pac-Man that just tweak the formula. But if Pac-Man's still under the hood, there's still something there that draws people. Cool. Um, well, Tim, this was great. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, here on the Video Game History Hour. Uh, once again, uh, Tim's book is available uh, now-ish. Um, should be available right now, uh, even if you got to pre-order it. Uh, and please go check it out. Uh, we will link to it in the show description, um, as well as uh, how to to get a hold of Tim yourself. But Tim, in the meantime, uh, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Lapatino or on Instagram, or uh, you know, I, the major collection of what most of the stuff I do is TimLapatino.com. Great, thanks a lot, Tim. Thank you guys so much. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>